So Jesus, as we turn to your word now, I do pray that your word would do what uh, you say that it does, that it would bring strengthening, comfort, and encouragement. I pray that it would bring perspective. I pray that your word would teach us. And we know, Lord, when we talk about your word, we're not just talking about a book. Your name is the word, and you are present with us. So come, and you be our instructor today, <clears throat> that you would be glorified and that we would be helped. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, please uh, look in your Bible to 1 Corinthians 13, that really famous chapter. I'm not going to read the whole chapter. <clears throat> um, I want to focus on a line of thinking that comes at the end of 1 Corinthians 13. You know what we call 1 Corinthians 13, right? What, what's it called? The love chapter, right? So it's interesting how it ends up. So we're going to pick it up with verse uh, 11. <clears throat> Excuse me. Verse 11, and I'll read to the end of the chapter. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. Now, the Apostle Paul's getting into some things here. Okay, so the speaking, the thinking, I reasoned like a child. And that's going to be important for us to hold on to. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now, we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now, I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been known. So now, faith, hope, and love abide. These three. But the greatest of these is love. Now, I think that there's a connection in these verses between the, the, the words that we speak, the thoughts that we have, and the reasoning of our heads, and what it means to reason, think, and speak like a child, and what it means to reason, think, and speak like a grown-up, and I think it has everything to do with faith, hope, and love. Let me try to explain that to you. I'm sure you've heard before the phrase, these three remain faith and hope and love, but the greatest of these is love. I'm sure you've heard that. It's on little you know, plaques that you buy at Christian bookstores. It said weddings, you know, those kinds of things. But Scripture has a way of speaking to us, but then Scripture has a way of getting embedded into our hearts, particularly through certain circumstances of life. Often, Scripture gets embedded into our heart through circumstances of pain. I believe City Light Church is going through such a circumstance right now. And those kinds of circumstances provide for you an opportunity as a church to become embedded, not as children, but to grow up more and more into adulthood. And it has everything to do with faith, hope, and love. I wonder how you would define faith. We're not going to do like a, a group study here, but I'm curious, though I'm not going to ask you to answer out loud. <clears throat> I 
I wonder how many people would say, you know, the, the typical phrase is, well, we would quote from Hebrews 11.1, 1, right? That faith is the, the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Often that's how we define faith. Let me give you a working definition of faith. Faith is drawing the conclusion of my life based not on what I see with my eye, what I feel with my emotion, or what I reason in my head. Faith is basing the conclusions of my life based on what God's Word says. Now, that was a mouthful. Let me, let me try to unpack that again. All of us are going through our life looking for answers to huge questions, like, am I okay? What should I do? Am I safe? You know, will this situation work out? We are constantly asking ourselves questions, and we draw conclusions about our life. We draw conclusions about each other. We draw conclusions about our situation. We draw conclusions about our God. But upon what do we draw those conclusions? Often we draw those conclusions based on what we see with our eye, what we reason with our head, or simply what we feel in the, in the moment. So you're having a bad day, and you conclude in your bad day, I'm a bad person. Is that what God's Word says, or is that just what you feel? Or... I'm unsafe, or our church is tanking, or, I mean, any kind of conclusion you could come up with based on what do you draw those conclusions? Are they based on what you see with your eye, what you reason with your head, what you feel in your emotion, or do you base them on what God's Word says? To be a person of faith means that we do not draw the conclusions to the big questions of our life based on what we see with our eye, what we feel with our emotions, or what we reason with our head. We base the conclusions of our life. We answer the deep questions of our life based on what God's Word says. Am I okay? Am I a good person or not? What should I do in this situation or that? Those are some of the big questions that we ask ourselves in our life. To be a person of faith means I answer those questions not according to what I feel, not just some whim that comes to my head, but I'm led by what God's Word says. Does that kind of make sense? Now, here's what happens then. Because of the nature of faith, that there is this kind of battle between will I draw the conclusions of my life based on what God says in his word or what I see with my eye or reason in my head. Therefore, my life typically is about an inner argument. There's, an, there's a dialogue going on inside of me. There's an argument going on trying to persuade me what to conclude or what to do or think or how to behave in any given situation. There's, a, there's, a, there's an argument going on. A, a more biblical term is there's a battle going on. There's a war 
going on. And there are members at war within me, but the, the way that those members wage war is there's a, there's a dialogue, there's an argument going on. And to be a person of faith, you're going to have to be on your toes. The biblical word for being on your toes is you're going to have to be watchful. You're going to have to be vigilant. That's what, what Elder Frank was talking about today. You can't just kind of float through your life, float through your day, doing just kind of whatever you feel like doing. You're going to have to be on your toes, thinking it through. Or according to, to Proverbs 4.24, that he quoted, you're going to have to, above all else, guard your heart because that's where the battle happens. There is a, an argument going on trying to persuade you what to conclude about your life. I want to give you a couple examples of how that argument works, okay? The first is found in Luke chapter 12. If you turn to that real quick, I don't think I'm going to read the whole text for you, but I want you to at least have it before you as we, as we talk about it. Luke chapter 12. Uh, verse um, 22. This is, again, a pretty, pretty popular text. It's the parallel is Matthew chapter 6. And, and this is the text where um, Jesus is talking to his disciples, his followers, and he's telling them to not be anxious. And there's an argument going on in, in the heart of the disciple uh, about whether or not they should conclude that the situation of their life is an anxious situation. And so th this is we enter into this argument that's going on. So Jesus says, don't worry about what you wear. Don't worry about what you eat. Don't, don't worry about such things. And then he gives a reason why. He says, one, because your father cares for you. And, and the truth is, really, what good is it going to do? Like, you're worrying. Can it add a single day to your life, a single hour to your life? Can, can your worry make you grow an inch? Like, your worrying doesn't accomplish you anything in terms of the big things of your life. And so why worry? You see how Jesus is arguing with their soul. But I want you to make sure that you get his argument because it's a, it's a significant argument that takes away worry in somebody's heart. Now, this is what he's not saying. Jesus is not saying since you can't do anything big in your life, like add a day to your life or grow an inch on your own, since you can't control anything significant or big, he's not saying, therefore, don't worry about anything small. Did you follow me? He's not saying, since you can't do anything of substance, don't think about anything that's little. He's not saying that. And you know why he's not saying that? Because the truth is, it never works. The, the reason why we worry about small things is precisely because we can't control the big things. Like, maybe I can't control my job, my career, my marriage. I can't, I can't make the big things of my life turn around, turn around or, or make them all work out, but I can clean my car. I can make sure that my furniture is lined up. I can... I can take charge of something small because I'm worried about what is big. I try to be the master of my small universe because I know I'm not the master 
of the big universe. That's what anxiety does to us. I can't control everything, so I'll control something. So Jesus in this text is not saying, hey, you can't control anything big, so don't worry about anything little. He's not saying that. The truth is that argument will never prevail in your soul. Here's what Jesus is saying in this text. He's saying, God, the reason you don't have to worry is because God cares about the little things. He cares about lilies. He, he cares about sparrows. Do you know how valuable a sparrow is? It's like worth two pennies. When you see two pennies on the side of the road, do you even stop and pick them up? My wife does. Most of us could care less about two pennies. God does. God cares about two pennies. God sees what's worth two pennies. He knows what's going on with the value of two pennies. His eye is on it, and he is providentially taking care of something so small. Therefore, if God cares about something so small, aren't you much more valuable than two pennies? The argument is from the lesser to the greater. Since you are worth since your life, your food, your clothing, your stature is so much more important than two pennies, certainly God cares for you. And if he cares for something that small, if his eye is on the sparrow, can't you trust him that he'll take care of you? Do you see how Jesus is arguing with his disciples? Saul, he is building faith in them so that the conclusions of their heart would not be based on their eye of sense or their reasoning faculties or what they feel in their emotions, but what God says. Then they will no longer be Children who reason like children, think like children, and speak like children, they will grow up in faith. All because of an argument that goes from lesser to greater. He cares about what's small. Certainly he'll care about you. Is that beautiful or what? Now let, let me get you on the other end. Romans chapter 8, verse 32, is an argument from the greater to the lesser. Now this, I've got to use my hands, okay? So Matthew chapter 6 and Luke chapter 12 is an argument. If you like math, any of you like math? I knew you did. What's your name? James? James, I knew you liked math. I don't know why I knew you liked math. So do you remember these, what do you call these things? Like, you know, they go like this in math. Greater than, less than signs, right? So 
So Luke chapter 12 goes like this. It's from the lesser to the greater. Okay? The lesser to the greater. And here you are. God cares about the lesser. So you're included in the greater. Romans chapter 8 starts with the greater and moves to the lesser. Would someone read out loud Romans 8.32? That's the greater. He who did not spare his own son. God did the greater. He did not spare his own son. Can you imagine that? God cares about the lilies, what is so small. God cares so much for you that he gave his own son. Now keep on reading, Amber. If he gives his own son the greater, he will give the lesser. He'll take care of you and everything. Do you get that? You see, the argument in Scripture is from both sides. If he cares for the least of things, like two cents, he'll care for you. And if he gave his son, which is the greatest thing in the universe, he will also with him graciously give you all things. City, light, church. Not according to the eye of sense, not according to what you see, not according to what you feel, not according to what you can figure out with your head. City, light, church, not according to what you would conclude in the flesh, but according to the will of God and the word of God, City Light Church, you are in great hands. This is a beautiful moment. For this is a God moment. He is in this. He is good. But you must Argue with your soul until the conclusions of your soul are not based on what you see with your eye, what you reason with your head. You do not do just whatever you want to do or whatever seems reasonable. You live your life according to what God's word says. It is the guardrails for your life. And in that place, you are absolutely safe. You're absolutely taken care of. One more text. Psalm 42. Look how the psalmist argues with his soul. You know, I said that this faith thing is about an inner argument. And in Psalm 42, it, it's a great example of Exactly that happening. Psalm 42, verse 5. Maybe you know this psalm. I love it. Now, if you don't know the working of a soul, you'll think that this guy needs to see a therapist. Look at, look at Psalm 42, verse 5. Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Who's he talking to? He's talking to himself. 
What kind of people talk to themselves? You do, and so do I. <laughs> the kind of people that talk to themselves are either sick people or wise people. This falls in the category of a really wise person. What is he doing in Psalm 42.5? He's arguing with his soul. Do you ever argue with your soul? So why are you downcast? Come on, what's, what's going on in this moment? Here's the way I say it. What kind of conclusions are you drawing about yourself, your situation, and your God right now? What are you basing those conclusions on? Where are you getting the information, soul, that right now you should be so downcast? You argue with your soul. And see what he does next? Why are you cast down on my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope. Remember 1 Corinthians 13? Now these three remain. Faith. What's the next? Hope is always the outflow of faith. Always. A well-grounded faith always springs up in hope. And you can always tell the measure of your faith by the level of your hope. Think about it. Faith is locking into a conclusion of your life not based on what you see. It doesn't exist yet. It's not, your boat has not come in yet. You have faith in something you do not yet see. But if you truly have that faith, you can't wait for it to happen. That's hope. You see it around the corner. You see Faith is opposed to conclusions based on natural reasoning. Hope is opposed to possession in the now. Romans 5 says, Who hopes for what he has? They're in opposition. So a person who deeply has faith it will always spring up with, if you have a tree, the root is faith. The tree above the ground, the root is faith. The tree above the ground that you see is hope. The word I like to use is buoyancy of spirit. I don't know if that works for you. Do you know what a buoyant spirit looks like? Looks like a hop in your step. Looks like a smile in your face. Looks like you can't wait to get out of bed. Looks like you can't wait to see what's around the next corner. It's an innate, excuse the pardon, excuse the pun, innate, get it? That's my name. It's an innate optimism. Not just optimism to be positive. It is grounded optimism in the Word of God because God's Word cannot fail. I can be hopeful about what's going to come around the corner. You see what the psalmist is doing? Why are you cast down on my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, in Yahweh, in the Lord, in the Almighty. For I shall again praise Him, my salvation. He's got my back. He's got us. Salvation is another term for safety. That's why I say, people of God, you're okay. You're going to be all right. 
you're going to be all right. Why? Because you've got a God who's got your back. That is the truth. If you stay aligned with him, just like your elder said, you've got good things in store for you. Now, friends, I am not making this up. I am not just being optimistic. I'm just letting come out of my mouth what God's word clearly says. Because Jesus said, I will build my church and hell itself will not stop the process. He said it. I tend to believe it. And it gives me hope. Now these three remain faith, hope, and love. How, how does love fit into this? If faith is the root and the tree is hope, do you know what the fruit is? Love is, love is the fruit. You see, in Galatians chapter 4, it says that the only thing that matters is faith expressing itself in love. We are saved by grace through love? No. Isn't that interesting? We're saved by grace through faith, yet the greatest of these is not faith, it's love. Why is that? The genuine evidence of true faith is hope expressing itself in love. In other words, I can stay engaged with a person like Rebecca. She's such a hard person to like, you know. She's such a hard person to hang out with. I'm Obviously, I'm being totally facetious. But imagine someone that's like difficult to be with. Like, why would I want to put up with them? How can you stay loving in a difficult situation, only if it's rooted in faith and hope, it gives strength to love. You see how it works? Therefore, the greatest is love because love is the evidence of mature faith. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I didn't have faith, hope, and love. When I, when I was a child, I, I fought like a child. I didn't have faith, hope, and love. When I was a child, I reasoned like a child. I drew all of my conclusions based on what I could see with my eye or what I could figure out with my head or with what I felt in the whim of the moment. I was childish. But Jesus has me growing up into mature adulthood. He has us all growing up into that. And the dynamic of that growth is faith, hope, and love. Let me end by reading the beginning of 1 Corinthians 13. And see if that makes sense. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, 
but I have not faith and hope that expresses itself in love. I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not faith that is mature, that expresses itself in hope and bears forth love, nothing. If I give away all I have and if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not faith grounded not in what I see with my eye or what I reason in my own head or what I feel but based on what God has declared birthing hope in my soul releasing love for God, his glory, his purposes. If I don't have that, I gain nothing. Faith, hope, and love is patient and kind. Faith, hope, and love does not envy or boast. Faith, hope, and love is not arrogant. It's not rude. Faith, hope, and love does not insist on its own way. Faith, hope, and love is not irritable or resentful. Faith, hope, and love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Faith, hope, and love bears, puts up with all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Faith, hope, and love. Never met. I debated if I should um, close with this illustration or not. Um, I'm going to talk you through it rather than making you do it. Okay? So I want you to imagine clearing the room here. We're not going to do it. Just imagine it. And gathering in a way that you lock arms. Dan, just kind of hold your arms. But now put your arm down and you lock arms. And then another locks their arm down. Okay. Do you get the picture? So arms locked, arms locked. And then another person here, locked arm. So you become this mass of humanity, like a human knot. You get that picture? So there you are knotted together in faith, hope, and love. You get that picture? If, if we had done that, all of you would be in about this much space right here, but it would really be awkward. <laughs> so I chose not to do it. Now, imagine that you're all knotted together, bound together, knit together right there, and I'm standing over here at this side of the room, and I decide that I'm going to run as fast as I can, put my shoulder down, and I'm going to run and try to knock you over. I come in. I, my feet leave the floor. I give it everything I've got. I come in. I, I put my elbow out, my shoulder out, and I hit that massive wall of humanity. What's going to happen? 
Well, somebody is going to get hurt probably a little bit. But the truth is, you're right. I'm going to be the one on the ground. The truth is, the impact on the group, it'll feel like this. Right? Because there's, just think of the weight differential. Right? There's, I don't know, probably a over a thousand pounds represented here compared to my 190 pounds running up against you. And I would hit you and you would go, especially if you're on the far side, you kind of go, huh? <laughs> and the poor guy that takes the hit, you know, it'd be James and he's strong. So he takes it for the team and he, he does, he goes, ouch, and he's a bit bruised, but James is still standing. Why? Why is James still standing? The support of the group. He's knit together. But what would happen if you were scattered? What if, what if we just scattered you and you were individually like around this room and I decided to go like a bull in a china shop and I just decided I'm going to go after anybody that's loose and particularly the elderly, the weak. And I'm going to do the same thing. I'm going to run across the room as fast as I can. And I'm going to come at you with all the strength that I have. And I'm going to fly through the air and you're in isolation. And I'm going to bring my whole body against you. Where are you going to end up? She does come through. I picked the wrong person. You get the picture? Scattered your vulnerable. Scattered your susceptible. Scattered somebody's going to get hurt. That's why the number one tactic of the enemy is to argue with your soul to oppose faith so that the conclusions of your heart will come by what you see with your eye, what you reason with your head, what you feel in the moment, and you just do whatever you feel like doing. That will scatter you. You will be vulnerable. People will get taken down. The sad thing is, the enemy plays for keeps. So your number one responsibility is to figure out how to band together with weapons of righteousness like sincere love, truthful speech, mercy, forgiving spirit. There will be Matthew 18 moments. Frank and I have discussed that. That, that, that could be. There could be Matthew. I'm not saying that, that love never confronts. Of course, love confronts. And as the evidence comes in, there could be time for that. But Scripture clearly says, judge nothing before the appointed time. So until the evidence is in, 
It's your job to stick together, even in levels of mystery. Hold on tightly. Know that Jesus is praying for you. You're going to be okay. Because he's good. You know what? I love you. The reason I say that is because if I feel love for God's people, that's not normal. I've never met you before. It's got to be something of his spirit communicating to my spirit that he wanted me to let you know that. God loves you. Would you stand with me, please? I want to pray for you. Or the worship team, come on up. Frank, you can come on up, and if you want to say anything, you can. Otherwise, the worship team can go right into a song. Jesus, we've kind of framed this message around City Light Church, but the truth is that all of us individually have stuff that's going on in our life much apart from this church, that could easily uh, create anxiety for us. All of us have situations where there would be arguments in our soul trying to get us to make conclusions that are not based on what you say, but on what we see, feel, or what we think on our own, by our own reasoning. So we're asking for the gift of faith, something that comes by grace, that enables us to do what we don't have um, the capacity to do on our own, that we could be believers. You say that a bruised reed you will not break. A smoldering wick you will not snuff out until you bring forth justice. We're crying out for justice for Wyoming Valley. We're crying out for kingdom purposes for Wyoming Valley. So we say, lift up your heads, O you gates, and be lifted up, you everlasting doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is the King of glory? The Lord mighty in battle. The Lord of hosts, he is the king of glory. So lift up your heads, O you gates. Be lifted up, you everlasting doors. O Wyoming Valley, lift up your gates that the king of glory may come in. We're looking forward in hope to a new day. We believe you're doing something to that end, and we trust you for it, and we will hold on. We will hold on and love you in your glory until we see that day. In Jesus' name.